This episode was sponsored by Squarespace. Use offer code WEEDS at checkout for 10% off your first purchase of a website and domain. Hello, welcome to another... (coughs) Hello. Hi, Matt. Hello. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, and I have with me today uh, Sarah Cliff, uh, and also Dylan Scott, our other amazing healthcare reporter, uh, because there is a brand new healthcare bill. It is uh, in some ways more different and and in some ways less different from the last healthcare bill than than I would have expected personally, uh, and they will will tell us all about it. Uh, But also, on the off chance that you're bored of healthcare podcasts, The Vox Media Podcast Network does feature many other podcasts. Uh, The latest episode of of Worldly, uh, talking about uh, terrorism and and the war against ISIS. Uh, You can see Zach Beecham's uh, amazing, uh, intriguing uh, Erdogan Gollum impression. Uh, Ezra Klein's got some interesting stuff happening. Oh, yeah. So as I mentioned on the last show, sometimes I even get tired of healthcare. Um, So I actually really enjoyed Ezra's interview with Eddie Izzard, um, who had a hilarious recap on the causes of World War I. I think our listeners would enjoy it. And if you were ready just to get out of politics and policy all together, um, Todd Vanderwerf's podcast, I think you're interesting, has Errol Morris this week on true crime and the art of documentary. It is a fantastic break from um, risk pools and health insurance and all those things we talk about here. But I love health insurance <laughs> and I love risk pools. Uh, okay. And if you love health insurance, well, it's not clear that you're going to love this No, I don't think bill. you will love this bill because I think you end up with something that doesn't look like health insurance. So the I'd say two significant changes. First of all, I'd say this health bill is still, if you're comparing it to the Affordable Care Act, it's still basically like the same deal. Like good for healthy, richer people, bad for poor, sick people. Like that's still the universe we're talking about. Um, but kind of two changes that I think are most significant. One is this amendment offered by Senator Ted Cruz and Senator Mike Lee that essentially lets these no rules health insurance plans back into the market. So uh, under the Senate bill, if it passed today, you could have plans that deny coverage to sick people that cover very few benefits. Um, I think this is like the, I don't know, like the pizza and whatever plan you've talked about before in the podcast, like a plan that's like our health insurance policy is we offer you pizza. Um, and maybe states would regulate against that. But you really would have these like very skimpy bare benefits plans. And this could really have some potential to wreak some havoc on the insurance market. We talked about the cruise amendment on Wednesday's um, episode of the weeds. And definitely all of that is very relevant to the Senate bill. And then the other thing going on here is they're taking out some of these taxes on high-earning Americans. Um, Two taxes in particular got removed that adds a significant amount. I think it's about $230 billion of deficit reduction to the health care bill. Some of that gets spent with other programs. Some of that seems to be in the pocket of um, Santa Claus Mitch McConnell, who can hand out presents to the senators he is trying to win over. Um, but so you're definitely seeing changes. I think the insurance market this one sets up, I'm curious, Dylan, your thoughts, is way worse and less functional, you know, than the Affordable Care Act or even the version imagined under the Senate bill. I I think it would end up being pretty similar to the insurance market that existed before the Affordable Care Act with this kind of not super well-funded high-risk pool for literally anyone with any health condition. So, you know, and and I think this ranges like from cancer to diabetes, you know, acute problems to chronic um, care that you really end up with a pretty dysfunctional insurance market as far as I see it. Yeah, I think one way to think about it is this turns Obamacare into a high-risk pool. So the Cruz Amendment, um, for those who don't know, is basically if a a health plan sold um, an insurance plan that complies with Obamacare's regulations, then they'd also be allowed to sell plans that don't comply with those regulations. And you could see how that would segment the market. The sick people are going to buy the more robust uh, Obamacare coverage, and healthier people are going to buy the skimpier non-Obamacare coverage. And that's going to drive up the costs in the Obamacare markets. And as you pointed out, the the bill does provide some funding to, to help account for those costs, though it's not at all clear whether that's going to be enough. So yeah, I think, you know, this is sort of a back doorway. Republicans have talked a lot over the last few months about how high risk pools are a better way to cover sicker people rather than having uh, healthy people pay higher premiums to subsidize the sick. And this seems like a backdoor way to turn Obamacare into that high risk pool that they've always wanted. So there's a weird thing about how the economics of this would work, because 
unlike in the old pre-Obamacare individual market, there are subsidies available to go buy these plans. So it's not inconceivable that someone would actually buy – there's this kind of like market for lemons, right? But you might actually buy a lemon because you can get a tax credit to help you afford the premium. But the plan is going to have a high deductible. So if you're actually poor and you're not going to be able to afford to pay the deductible, the tax credits don't really help you at all. Right. Yeah, that's the one thing but that didn't change. If you're like both rich and sick, you now get a government subsidy to buy your high deductible insurance plan is that right yeah i think that's a decent way to think about it although you know it's like still a risky market for you if you're rich and sick because the premiums might keep going up and up so if you're rich you know you're not getting the subsidy the subsidies no that's right you're not at 350 um percent of poverty so it, actually, if you're no, no, I take back. Right right. Right. Like, who if, is the who is the customer for this? The plan? customer for this plan is someone who earns like forty thousand dollars and is sick. So they're getting the subsidy, but I don't even know if they're in a great place because like they still have a six thousand dollar deductible. Which when you're earning forty thousand dollars and like you presumably have to like pay for rent or a mortgage and like all these other things one pays for in life, that I don't. I don't know who the winner is. I mean, you had a piece yesterday, Matt, that this seems to it, it takes out some of the wins for like the ultra wealthy, but doesn't really seem to like funnel that back into the cuts of health insurance. Well, that's the strange thing about the revisions that they made is there was a lot of talk about, well, if we keep some of these Obamacare taxes, then we can increase the financial assistance that's available to people because the Senate bill scales it back from what Obamacare provides, and to Matt's point, basically pegs it to a higher deductible plan. But the revised bill doesn't actually do that. It just provides more funding that goes to health insurance companies to help Mm -hmm. lower costs. But it still seems like the basic structure is going to be higher deductible, higher cost. Yeah, and I want to walk through the the process in this because it's like the first bill came out. It seemed like it had all these problems. But we did have – we did have Avik Roy who we've interviewed on the site who's been on on Ezra's plan. And you know he was making this sort of strong conservative case against Medicaid, that Medicaid is like garbage and that this is going to – going to be better because like even this like crappy high deductible plan is going to be better but even he allowed that like really to fix this you had to provide more financial assistance to low-income people so that they could use the mcconnell so he was like he was making the case for the mcconnell care vision of the insurance market but he was conceding that there wasn't quite enough money in it to like get poor people into those plans. And then I was sitting off here being Mr. Cynical, being like, well, it's no coincidence that they don't have the money. Like they want these giant tax cuts for billionaires. And then I read in in your reporting, Dylan, that it was like, there's talk of like, just taking out some of the giant tax cuts for billionaires, and then they could then they could fund healthcare. And I thought, well, that's weird. That That doesn't seem like something they would do. But what they actually did was they so, I mean, there's still big tax cuts, but but significantly less, and particularly it's a, it's a lot less regressive. But they didn't take that money and put it into more health insurance for people. And when you look at it, it, it does spend a little bit more money, but the amount of money it spends is actually so small that even the old bill had like enough budgetary headroom to do that what, what is it there's a an opiate funding yeah there's 45 billion dollars for opioid funding now yeah so they didn't they didn't need to remove the tax cuts to free well up there's also yeah there's also an additional 70 billion to this um patient stabilization fund but i think one of the things it's like yeah, a little what is that so it's a little that. confusing like <laughs> and it seems like it might be double counted in some ways that i don't feel fully prepared to talk about right now um But essentially, it's this fund that goes to health insurance companies, like Dylan was mentioning, to offset the costs of um, people who are really expensive. So maybe this could actually help. Like maybe a health insurance company could decide, like, oh, I'm going to use this money to lower deductibles. But it's not a sure shot. Like the way the Affordable Care Act does it, it says, like, 
okay, you know, if you earn $10,000, you you get the subsidy on your premiums, and you get the subsidy on your deductible, and it's very targeted and clear how the money is being spent. Um, this one, it's like this fund that states can pull money from, but there's no formula for how the money goes out. Like, you could see, you know, some have suggested it could be used to, like, reward states that are doing things the federal government likes or, you know, punish states that are doing things that they don't like. It's a bit of, like, a big unknown, I think, like, what is it? Like 180 billion at, at this, this point with, yeah. with the new money. Mm-hmm. It's like this big unknown pile of money that I don't know, Dylan, what do you think about about this fund? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it seems like a more convoluted way to try to do the same things that the Affordable Care Act already does in terms of lowering out of pocket costs and, and covering high risk patients. So yeah, I think it's all it's kind of being done in the name of um, state flexibility, because a mm-hmm. lot of this money is funding to state programs that they can decide how to try to lower costs for people. And um, I mean, the other thing I guess to just keep in mind is, you know, most of the healthcare industry is opposed to this bill, as far as we can tell. But the one thing we know um, is that health insurers have often been in the room with Senate Republican leadership helping to craft this. And so this is a lot of money that's being. But they don't like this bill either. They don't like, especially with the the cruise cruise amendment. amendment. Yeah, Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, Well, and the other thing that just occurred to me, Matt, um, you know, in terms of what are they doing with these taxes that they're now keeping is they didn't touch the Medicaid stuff. Like this Mm -hmm. is still a huge Medicaid (laughs) cut, even though, you know, there are a half dozen Republican senators who seem genuinely um, perturbed by the cuts to Medicaid, you know, ending the generous federal funding for Medicaid expansion and placing a spending cap on Medicaid for the first time. And yet, even with all these tens of billions of dollars that they now have by keeping the tax cuts or the taxes on the wealthy. So I have a question I want to discuss. Like, what do you guys, so now that we've seen like the high, because I think there was kind of this like liberal narrative that like, oh, this is just to do tax cuts. Like this is a bill to create tax cuts on the wealthy. And they've taken some of those out. I'm curious, like how you guys think about like what, what is the goal of this bill? You know, I can sort of see it from Ted Cruz's point of view, like the goal of this bill is to deregulate the health insurance industry but i'm curious like i don't know if you have like thoughts on like mitch mcconnell but like what is this what do you guys feel like this bill is trying to do at this point i hate to say it because like on its face if you look at the impact of this bill it looks like someone is really concerned about the federal budget deficit right <laughs> yes. which like i i don't believe that that's what's going on here but that's what it seems to be that if you took at face value some 2011 vintage tea party rhetoric that like debt and deficits are killing america that a bill that cuts taxes some but then cuts spending way more it cuts spending now about twice as much as it cuts taxes like it's a it's a truly earnest honest to god conservative small government effort at deficit reduction particularly because as big as the deficit reduction in the first 10 years is the deficit reduction in the second 10 years is gigantic mm-hmm. because the the medicaid cuts uh, become like cataclysmically large right. it's a 35 percent cut to medicaid over right. in two, it's a decade two. And, and i would have said two weeks ago i would have said why is there this cataclysmic medicaid cut pushed way out into the future and i would have said the reason is because under the bird rule that kind of long-term medicare cut gives you license to enact a gigantic tax cut but now it's like a medium-sized <laughs> tax cut so i've I don't know. I wonder if we should start to think about about it as almost privatizing Medicaid or maybe privatizing the Medicaid population. So the bill, you know, ends Medicaid expansion effectively, places a spending cap on Medicaid. And then it also adjusts, this hasn't gotten a ton of attention, but it adjusts the eligibility for the tax subsidies for private insurance so that anybody can qualify for them. Right, right. now, if you make below the poverty line, you actually can't qualify for the tax subsidies because of a kink and Obamacare and the Supreme Court and yada, yada, yada. And I thought it was interesting. Uh, I was just listening to John Hoven, uh, a senator from North Dakota, talk about the bill yesterday. And he seemed to sort of be, you know, because he's been preoccupied with Medicaid, um, but he seemed pretty positive. And he, as he was kind of justifying what this bill does, he was like, well, the people in that population, you know, they're going to get tax credits and maybe some of the for private insurance and maybe some of the Medicaid money can be funneled to them to pay, help pay for private insurance. Like, and to your point earlier about how OVIC, you know, there's a very obviously an overarching conservative problem with Medicaid as it currently exists. And I wonder if 
you know, it, it hasn't really been presented that way, but I wonder if that's part of the long-term kind of philosophical goal. Right, Cause this has been like a long-term goal of the Republican party. Like, I think that's a good point to put this in context of making Medicaid much smaller, uh, of privatizing Medicaid in some sort of way of transitioning it to, you know, almost doing something that like harkens back to welfare reform in, in the 1990s of changing the way that the program works. But, um, I don't know. It feels to draw like a lot of wrong lessons from the Affordable Care Act. Like one, I think, pretty clear lesson to me is that these private marketplace plans, like they just haven't like worked that great. And it's really hard for me to see insurers wanting to go, particularly if you keep in this cruise amendment, like insurance companies wanting to compete in this like zany landscape where you have like the the no rules plans and the tons of rules plans and they don't feel like they can price and like Everyone I've talked to in the insurance industry, like, um, you know, I was talking to some folks who said the cruise amendment is drafted was even worse than they expected, that they, you know, had come out, this group had come out opposing it, but it it turned out to be even worse than what they had expected from it. That it's hard to see, you know, how the people who are currently on Medicaid expansion, like, come out in an okay way in this kind of world, even if they do have like those those subsidies that, you know, Senator Hovind's talking about. Well, because I mean, this goes back to the the deductibles are too high mm. for the Medicaid popular. I mean, the CBO did this in their previous analysis and nothing in this new bill that I can see would change that. But they were, you know, so if you're eligible for, for Medicaid right now, you're making Twelve thousand dollars, yeah, fifteen thousand or for less. a single person, for fifteen thousand. So, even if you get a really good tax credit, even just for yeah. free, okay, we will sign you up for free, but for a plan with a five thousand dollar deductible, well, the plan's never going to kick in, you know, unless you you're hit with some some right. cataclysm. And even then, it's like not providing the financial protection because like right. you're not like like you could say, oh, well, at least it's protecting you from bankruptcy. But if you're earning fifteen thousand dollars a year, it a six thousand but- dollar event could like send you to bankruptcy very easily. And it doesn't do the thing that Medicaid does the, even in the studies that the cranky right wingers like to point to, like say that like Medicaid let poor people like go see the doctor they got their cancer diagnosed they got their blood pressure taken you know like that like routine stuff you can't do that on a five thousand deductible plan when you're living below the poverty line i guess it's true that eventually this bill allows states it almost forces states to apply for their medicaid money to become a block grant yeah uh, in the like it's more in the distant future, but the, but the cuts are, get so severe that I think you would have to do that. And so then you could say, I guess, in your block grant application, well, instead of giving anybody Medicaid, I'm going to help – I'm going to use Medicaid money to create prefunded HSAs for people. But that's very – hypothetical and well there is a precedent for it though right so like arkansas has expanded mm-hmm. medicaid but use that money for people to buy private insurance on their exchange right. like they use their medicaid expansion money for people to yeah. buy private coverage so yeah but it's I mean, very different private coverage right, like right. because they have all this medicaid money the deductible is basically That's non-existent the like the cope like they had to put these like guardrails around the traditional private coverage because they were dealing with this low-income population. i mean arkansas is more like what i think Senate Democrats initially mm-hmm. wanted yes. the whole thing to be, and then they wound up concluding that it would actually be cheaper to do yeah. a lot of Medicaid. Right. right. Like the Obama administration was supportive of like Arkansas, and it's like so. Some background: Arkansas this is history, but, <laughs> ages ago in 2014, Arkansas kind of like had this innovative idea of using its Medicaid money to buy private coverage on the marketplace that helped. You know, that kind of made the marketplace a little bit more robust. But in order to do it, the administration required, like, these people have to have, like, a similar experience to Medicaid. They can't have this big deductible. They can't have these big premiums. You have to give them non-emergency transport to their doctor appointments. Like, you have to make it look like Medicaid to them. And I don't think that is exactly what, um, what Republicans are aiming for in this bill. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. Make it with Squarespace. 
people need to have websites in the year 2017. Whether you're a creative professional of some kind, uh, you do photography, you, you do design, you're a restaurant, you've got a small business, whatever it is, you should have a website and the website should look good. It shouldn't look like, you know, you, you paid somebody to make it 15 years ago and, and now it's garbage. At the same time, if you're doing something in your life, you are probably not a qualified web designer, web programmer. I used to make websites for myself, uh, by myself. It was really hard. It was really time consuming and they look like garbage. Now with Squarespace, that is completely solved. You can get an all-in-one platform with nothing to install or patch or upgrade ever. You get award-winning 24-7 customer support. You get a unique domain experience so that, you know, you can, you can get a good sort of classy name for your website. And best of all, they've got these amazing templates. It's what you see is what you get design. You click, you drag, you drop, you do whatever you want. It's done by professionals, so you will get a website that looks professional, but you do not need professional-level design skills, and it's really cheap, really affordable. Um, musicians, designers, artists, restaurants, and more use it. It's really easy to use, really easy to set up, really easy to support. Here's what you need to know. You use offer code WEEDS for 10% off your first purchase of a website and a domain. That's use offer code WEEDS at checkout. Squarespace, make your next move. Let's talk about the Medicaid in the, in the out years, right? Because first they end the Medicaid expansion, and then they cap Medicaid spending, which is what the House bill did, right? Which is basically say, you have is it four or is it five categories of people? I think it's four. I think four. So the four categories of people, it's like kids, disabled, elderly. Pregnant and, women, I think is the last one. Uh, pregnant women. Um and so then for each kind of person, there's like a cap. You get, you know, whatever thousand dollars for a kid. And then that is set to grow in the house bill at the rate of medical services inflation, which, you know, okay, there's, there's problems with it, but I, I can make the case for that, right? I mean, what, what conservatives, what the house bill is saying is like, look, we shouldn't just have a totally open-ended commitment to Medicaid spending. We should have a reasonable-ish restraint on it, and states are going to have to make this work. Um, you can read Dylan Matthews wrote a piece about who's going to lose out in that framework. Um, it's a it's a cut. I mean, it's a meaningful cut, but it's a cut with some. I could I I could explain to you what it's for. In the Senate bill, the per capita caps grow at the overall rate of price inflation which is quite a bit lower. Right. And so you create a situation where it's saying, okay, like treat these people, but you don't have enough money to treat them. Yeah. Well, and that that cut or the the deeper cut starts in 2025, I think, which right. is why if you look at the longer budget window, the cuts become that much more severe. And that's what's that's one of the things and this is maybe getting more to political speculation, but that's one of the things that's perplexing about this is because, you know, there's a half dozen senators who have been really hung up on this lower growth rate for the spending caps in the later years. And really, it wouldn't cost that much money, at least in the 10-year budget window that we're using to evaluate this bill, to just bump it up to what the House bill had, to a to a growth rate that's linked to medical expenses. And yet McConnell has decided not well, even crazier, he has told his moderates, I think Axios reported this, that they don't have to worry about these far-range Medicaid cuts because they'll never take effect. Like, at some point, they'll intervene, they'll put in more money, like, oh, we couldn't actually let those deep cuts take effect. But you presume if, like, your goal was not to have the deep cuts, you would just change your bill. Um, but I want to talk about the forthcoming CBO report and, like, some expectations there, because that's going to come out Monday, um, two days from now, and we will not have a podcast on Monday, as far as I know. Um, but I think one of the things that's interesting is how this cruise amendment gets scored and like how that is included. It seems like the cruise amendment might not even be scored. It might be scored separately by HHS. And when you think through like one of the reasons they might not want that to happen, I was thinking back to um, the CBO blog post from December that kind of stuck in my mind as CBO blog posts have a way of way <laughs> of doing Um and they had issued this kind of like out of nowhere blog post last December where they basically said, like, we know you guys are going to work on Obamacare repeal and like we're not going to score like anything as health insurance. Like if we are going to count someone as covered, it has to the quote is provide financial protection against high medical costs. And it, it seems like 
these plans that might be offered under the cruise amendment may not, in fact, do that. This is one of the reasons the cruise amendment is really hard for CBO to score. They've never said, like, here's what counts as financial protection. They've just said, like, it has to offer this thing called financial protection. Um, but I don't know if these plans, like, offered in the cruise amendment meets that um, metric. So you could see, like, a lot. And then you could, like, really see this CBO Republican war, like, hit a fever pitch where CBO saying, well, that stuff's not health insurance. And then Republicans saying, well, like, look at this biased CBO, like we're getting all these people covered and they won't even count it. Um, it seems like it could be a relatively contentious report that we get on Monday. Yeah. And to your point, for totally different reasons, I was asking some budget experts last night what they were expecting from the CBO score. And usually they it seems like they have a pretty good handle on what to expect. But yesterday they seemed totally perplexed about how the cruise amendment is going to shake out. And so, yeah, it seems like a big X factor. So how many people had, do, do, I don't want to put you on the spot, but like in the pre Obamacare individual insurance market, like those plans were pretty crappy, Yeah, but they also just like weren't covering very many people. Right. It wasn't like a super popular. It was small. I want to say it was around like 10 to 11 million people in the individual market pre ACA. It's certainly grown. It hasn't grown as quickly as the drafters of the Affordable Care Act would have liked. But you had plans that, um, you know, the way you measure the generosity of a plan is actuarial value, uh-huh. the percent of benefits it covers for, an act- for um, you know, an average beneficiary. And you had like 40, 50% AV plans, meaning like for the average person, you're buying this plan, you're paying premiums, and it covers 40% of your medical costs, you're on the hook for 60. And I don't know like how, like, there's like a bit of like a philosophic argument, like what counts as health insurance? Where do you draw the line that I think people would have varying opinions on? But yeah, you had like some real, you had a smaller market with plans that were not nearly as robust as the ones you have now. So a a sort of smallish, but maybe big tweak that's in the screws amendment is that you could use HSA money to pay premiums on the individual market, mm-hmm. which makes this whole thing more – I don't know how many people this would apply to, but like if you were genuinely paying at a high income tax rate but for some reason didn't have health insurance, which I'm not – I'm a little unclear on like who this is, but it would be a lot of financial assistance to like a hypothetical – like wealthy yet somehow unemployed person <laughs> who I don't I, I mean I really don't know who this is but like that that seems like I mean I guess it's like someone at a startup maybe who like doesn't have like a health insurance plan and lives in Silicon Valley I don't know I'm trying to think yeah what point is. do you start to really benefit I don't know but is it like upper middle class I or? mean you know I mean it's you know there's some benefit all the yeah. way down but it, it you know how, how much benefit you get from an HSA obviously depends on what your your tax bracket is right so if you make over $450,000 a year you're paying a marginal tax rate of, of 40% uh, or, or more depending on what state you live in so being able to use HSA money uh, if you're like in New York or California and you're super rich is like 50% off on your insurance premiums. So that's a great deal. But again, I'm, I'm skeptical that there are like a lot of people earning 700 grand living in New York city, but for some reason they can't get employer sponsored health insurance. You think in your head, you're like, well, maybe it's movie stars, right? (laughs) But, but they have a, the the screen actors guild thought of this a long time ago. And, and so they have a, a a union plan. So I'm it's rock stars. Is Taylor Swift? Is yeah, it the Taylor Swift carve out? I don't know if 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 musicians have have some kind of some kind of guild for this, but it's it's a weird thing for me. I mean, I've seen some uh, liberal economists express concern that this is going to be like a really big expansion of HSAs as a as a sort of tax evasion, a tax avoidance mm-hmm. vehicle for, for high income people. Well, and one of the other things going on is I think they're also l- lifting how much you can contribute to your HSA. Right, so you have right. two things going on, both you can spend your HSA on more things and you can contribute more money to it. Right. And so this is the kind of thing where like in some hypothetical conservative science fiction universe where you eliminate the employer sponsored tax deduction these new, much bigger HSAs become a really big deal. And it becomes that the sort of broad upper middle class professionals uh, would be sheltering ta- sheltering money in HSAs, then using that money to pay for premiums, for high deductible insurance plans, and to pay the out-of-pocket costs. And then I don't know what's supposed to happen to poor people. Right. But like the predicate of that 
doesn't apply. Like most people, most like upper income people just like have jobs. Right. Because <laughs> obviously it is here, like ideologically, it's about equalizing the tax treatment of health insurance, right? Right. Um, and I wonder if this is part of more of a long term play because like there was originally in the house bill way back when there would have been some changes to the tax treatment of employer-based insurance and they ended up getting rid of that because it's dramatically unpopular politically but i know like when i sat down with the folks at heritage um shortly after the election they were like you know getting rid of the um tax exclusion for employer-based insurance is like our number one goal for health reform and i wonder if they still have that that in the back of their mind and so getting some wins on hsas now helps for that kind of longer like lay the groundwork for something like although it seems like weird you're just going in the other direction like instead of and it's like almost making it I don't actually. You're fully, leveling the playing yeah, field, field from up. the other side, right? Exactly. So you're trying to like, like you have like the employer sponsored at a very high level, and you're pulling other people up like a little closer to that, right? But I don't like again, like I don't know, like let's say you know you're working like at a fast food restaurant, and maybe you're already. I'm trying to think through the situation, like someone who's working at a fast food restaurant. They're already they're getting a tax credit. They are already paying their premiums, like. Maybe they're helped a little bit no. by this. I don't think so, though. I mean, because there's already, you know, education savings accounts and 529 accounts and 401k accounts. You just you have to be pretty rich to be like running up against your tax law <laughs> ability to like stash money in these different kinds of accounts. Like the reason people don't aren't maxing out these accounts is like they don't have that much. My, they're mm-hmm. they're spending the money on like rent and gas and mm-hmm. and stuff like that, right? I mean, you, you have to imagine an American who's like maxing out his IRA contributions, maxing out his five twenty nine contributions, maxing out the existing small HSAs, and then like just like has this money burning a hole in their accountant's pocket, and so it's it's like a I I don't like the not doing the tax cuts and then not using the money for anything. It's like. It does. It feels like a move and a chess game that's supposed to set something else up. But like what? Yeah. And I don't it it seems far fetched that we're ever going to get to their end game. Sponsor this week is Parachute. Uh, this is a company they, they make and they sell sheets, uh, the softest, comfiest sheets you will ever own, they say. Um, they're the softest, comfiest sheets that I have ever owned personally. Uh, they're, they're really nice. They're made from the best fabrics and materials in Europe's world-renowned factories. There's a nice, clean, minimalist style, neutral colors. It's, it's sort of classy, uh, uh, nice-looking stuff. All natural, no harmful chemicals, no synthetic softeners. Uh, it only gets softer and softer with time. It's, it's a really sort of nice design feature. They come out. They're great. They get better over time. Uh, you're really going to love them. They also give back. They partner with the United Nations Foundation to donate malaria prevention bed nets. Over 16,000 have been donated so far. Uh, that, that's a really great cause. It's one of the most cost-effective ways to help people in the developing world. And they also do returns donated to Habitat for Humanity, so they're giving back locally. Um, so the basic deal is you visit parachutehome.com slash weeds. You get free shipping and returns. Uh, that's parachutehome.com slash weeds, free shipping and returns. You get a 60-night trial so if you don't love it you just send it back no questions asked uh they're really confident you're gonna love these sheets check it out parachutehome.com so should we talk so a little talk about the votes oh yeah that's what i was gonna say like what what's next week look like dylan you're our our man on the hill so senator sandoval has to weigh in Sen- yeah. we need uh yeah we need um we need senator sandoval to make his position he's clear. in providence actually for the governor's association he's very close by i was wondering if the democrats could like pay for him to fly down to dc and get in <laughs> dean heller's ear um what, what does cvs like this bill that's cvs yeah that's what's oh in they providence. are in rhode island no yeah. he's at the governor's association uh. meeting um <laughs> I'm guessing CBS doesn't. They haven't weighed in, my guess, less medical spending, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, sorry. So what happens next week, Dylan? So right now, Republican leaders are saying that they're going to hold the vote to start debate on the bill on Tuesday. And so that's a it's really just a procedural vote. It's not, you know, a vote on final passage. But I think everybody is treating it as the mo- the crucial vote because once you start debate on the bill which then eventually allows you to get to a final vote on the bill and I how think, many votes do you need to open debate you need 50 votes plus one if vice president pence has to come down and break a 50 50 tie um and so right now after the revised bill was released yesterday there are 52 senate republicans and susan collins of maine and rand paul of kentucky have already said that they would oppose that procedural vote to start debate and so 
Mitch McConnell is already working with no room for error. There right now are potentially 50 votes to start debate, and that's it. And so that's why we have our eyes on these senators like Dean Heller of Nevada and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, who have been pretty apprehensive about the Senate bill um, thus far, but have not yet said whether they would, under the revised bill, whether they would vote to start debate or not. And this is like a group who's like you were saying, like their concerns were not met in this new draft at all like this draft really felt like it addressed it pulled the bill very far rightward and like what's your do you feel like they get like special handouts at this point or how do you read like because because you said they have all these medicaid concerns that are just answered nowhere on this bill right like how do they get on board or do they get on board yeah so i will note that this group was, in, and I don't think I mentioned Rob Portman of Ohio, but he's another one. They met with McConnell for about two hours yesterday afternoon after the revised bill came out. You were there. I you was stood there. Outside I stood outside in and my back's all out of shape <laughs> after that. But anyway, so nobody really said much coming out of it. Um, but I would note, I guess, two things. One is the bill, as the folks at Bloomberg already flagged, <laughs> includes a funding stream that effectively, it doesn't say this, but it's effectively for Alaska and therefore Lisa Murkowski. Um, and the Kodiak kickback, the as Kodiak call it here kickback, polar payoff. I saw a Janode jackpot, which I thought was pretty good. Um, anyway, uh, and so we won't know exactly how much until the new CBO score comes out, but McConnell is going to have some sum of money. I got like a very rough estimate that it could be like a hundred billion dollars that he can add to the bill while still meeting the budget rules that he must under the Senate process. And so then it becomes a question of, you know, I've some lobbyists think, you know, maybe he'll still increase the growth rate to the, to match medical expenditures, you know, to satisfy some of these senators, or maybe we'll start to see more targeted mm-hmm. provisions that you know are directed to Nevada or directed to Ohio and West Virginia but i think it's hard to know um you know that's probably those are the conversations that probably started yesterday i mean one thing to be said about this is that if we hadn't seen the passage of the bill in the house i think we would be saying this is like a non-starter that right that you have a half dozen senators whose stated objections to the first bill are not addressed here at all um the bill did some other things which seem like they make it worse from the perspective of those stated objections and so it can't pass without substantive change but we saw this movie in the house of representatives where you had some defectors from the right and you had some defectors from the left and they changed the bill to answer the concerns on the right and then most of the moderates just got on board for no reason or i mean <laughs> for very small reasons. i mean they had reasons but i mean it was it, 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 the the bill did not change to answer their substantive concerns it seemed more like as long as the bill wasn't going to pass they were going to raise moderate sounding objections to it but once the freedom caucus was no longer blocking the bill uh house republicans from california in particular didn't want to block the bill either um, and so in the Senate, you see something a little bit like this, right? I mean, in like normal world, if you have a bill and then you have Shelley Moore Capito saying, I can't vote for this bill because of Medicaid cuts, extra money for opioids is not good enough. It's about the Medicaid cuts. And then a new bill comes out with some extra money for opioids, but it keeps the Medicaid cuts. Uh, Capito would say right away, as I said last week, <laughs> the, you know, and then we'd say like, okay, not like, not like this is doomed. Right. But that like something else has to happen. But instead, all these people flipped from like no to undecided in a mysterious way that I think is making uh, the progressive advocates very queasy that, you know, there's just going to be a little bit of hand waving and sort of legislative magic. But that's really just all based on what happened in the House. And I do think the Senate, the Senate is a little bit different from the House, just in the sense that. Not all of these senators, or, or even most of them by any means, but that like Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, uh, and Rob Portman certainly all like are much more, they're much like bigger politically in their state than mm-hmm. like the Republican Party per se. Like Rob Portman ran, I think, 10 points ahead of Donald Trump in Ohio. Uh, Lisa Murkowski beat the Republican Party nominee to win her election. Oh, she had a write-in ballot and she won the state. Which is like, just crazy. Which is insane. <laughs> right. Like she owes Mitch McConnell absolutely nothing. 
Right. So it's not to say that they won't back down, but that they have the means to not back down. Well, these right. are mostly senators who you know are representing statewide office in states that have had quite successful Medicaid expansion. So they really have like a lot on the line here. Uh, like Alaska has a provision in its state law that if the funding match on Medicaid expansion drops, they stop participating. And I think they, their depart, the Alaska Department of Health and Human Services put out some figure like they're they're done in 2020 you know medicaid expansion is over you know despite the polar payoff or whatever that's helping out in the private market like this is the end of things and that's a lot of federal money lost um and then you have like both portman and heller have these governors who are like constantly on television talking about how great medicaid is and who are like become these weird salesmen for the affordable care act I think it's a different you did not have that kind of dynamic in the House. So I think like it could follow the House path, but there are more pressures in this case and more flexibility given like their strength at home that that maybe suggests a different path. Squarespace. Make your next move, make your next website, make it with Squarespace. People need to have websites in the year 2017. Whether you're a creative professional of some kind, uh, you do photography, you, you do design, you're a restaurant, you've got a small business, whatever it is, you should have a website and the website should look good. It shouldn't look like, you know, you, you paid somebody to make it 15 years ago and, and now it's garbage. At the same time, if you're doing something in your life, you are probably not a qualified web designer, web programmer. I used to make websites for myself, uh, by myself. It was really hard. It was really time consuming and they look like garbage. Now with Squarespace, that is completely solved. You can get an all-in-one platform with nothing to install or patch or upgrade ever. You get award-winning 24-7 customer support. You get a unique domain experience so that, you know, you can, you can get a good sort of classy name for your website. And best of all, they've got these amazing templates. It's what you see is what you get design. You click, you drag, you drop, you do whatever you want. It's done by professionals, so you will get a website that looks professional, but you do not need professional-level design skills, and it's really cheap, really affordable. Um, musicians, designers, artists, restaurants, and more use it. It's really easy to use, really easy to set up, really easy to support. Here's what you need to know. You use offer code WEEDS for 10% off your first purchase of a website and a domain. That's use offer code WEEDS at checkout. Squarespace, make your next move. Let's talk about Dean Heller specifically yes. in The Crosshairs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's the most interesting character to me because he is he's in the most precarious political position. He has to run for re-election next year in a state that is increasingly trending blue. You know, if they elected a Democratic senator last year and voted for um, Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. And he's got um, an overwhelmingly popular Republican governor, Brian Sandoval, who won, I had forgotten this, he won, won re-election in 2014 with 70% of the vote, which is just oh. absurd. And he is completely embraced Obamacare. They expanded Medicaid. They created their own exchange. And those two stood side by side in late June and said, the Senate bill isn't good enough. And if this is the bill, then we're not, you know, Sandoval said he would oppose it. And Heller basically said, if Sandoval opposes it, then I oppose it. And there's no indication, you know, as we've been going over and over again, that that anything has changed in this bill that addresses their substantive concerns. The, the flip side of that is that from the beginning, Susan Collins seems to have been given like a pass on this from Republican leadership, which is a kind of reflection that she's going to do what she's going to do. Uh, she's been in Maine politics since like before the dawn of time. And Maine is weird and it is what it is. Whereas Heller has come under intense pressure. Mm -hmm. There was like talk of Trump's super PAC running ads against him. There's this story about Steve Wynn and uh, who's the other? It's Shelby Adelson. Adelson. Yeah. The two big casino guys in the state right. are like really leaning on him. The quote was uh, Republicans say Heller is going to be bought off. Right. Um, and so a uh, I mean, a, a dilemma in the sort of like hyper-partisan era that people face is that if you personally are like a huge political franchise in your state, the way I think Collins is in Maine or, or John McCain is in Arizona, that then bucking your party and being independent can be great for you because there's, there's voters who reward that. And like, you're, you're just big. You say like, I'm doing what's right for Maine. But Heller is not like a, like a famous 
political superstar. He's right. in an actual tenuous situation in Nevada, and he he needs to appeal to crossover voters, but he also needs the enthusiastic backing of Republican Party donors and of Donald Trump. He can't have Adelson and Wynn. He, he can't have like donors and and Republican Party leadership saying we're through with Dean Heller. He wasn't there for us when we needed him. Yeah. Like let's let whatever Jackie Rosen take the seat. Yeah. It's like but, then he's definitely doomed. But I'm curious how does he how does he ever walk back from that press conference? Well, and I, I don't think like you're saying he can't have these Republican donors. But if he is like totally out of sync with the rest of the staff, like I, I think one of the interesting things we'll be watching. So the way this went out last time was I think the bill came out on a Thursday. On Friday, Sandoval and Heller like have this press conference where basically like Sandoval like talks for a long time about how great Obamacare is. And Heller walks up to the microphone and says a few words, basically saying like, yes, I, I agree. And then but it's really like the Sandoval press conference. So I am curious. I am curious to see if like later today, which is Friday, if he once again, like inserts himself in a high profile way. Because I think that shifts the dynamics but i think you know you're saying he can't have these like republican super donors against him i don't know if he can like survive the like democratic progressive world that's becoming increasingly strong in in nevada completely going against him either like it's really hard for me to see like how he comes out of this on on either side because i think he's become for progressive activists like this flashpoint like you know person to focus on that they will just just as conservatives will like they will go hard at him if if they see him vote for this bill. The the old fashioned thing for him to do would be to commit to voting no on this and to then give Republicans a gut check moment where either they support their most vulnerable nominee because party leaders support their vulnerable members and try to get them reelected or else he switches parties, right? right? Yes. But the but the the Arlen Specter precedent was that because Specter, you remember, wound up switching parties in that kind of circumstances. He he defected to vote for the stimulus bill, and then the Republican Party leadership had been protecting Specter uh, for for years. But it was like prime Tea Party moment, and like he was going to lose a primary challenge to Pat Toomey. He switched to the Democrats, but then he wound up losing the Democratic primary. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. De Democratic Party leaders were not able to like seal the deal in the way that that you would want because the flip side of this this whole thing for heller i, I mean something that's going to make it tough for him is that it's not like if he votes no on this that the uh the culinary workers union in nevada and the uh there's a one or two house democrats who are vying to run against him they're not going to all be like thank you dean heller you saved obamacare right they're going to still be gunning for him right and it's like you know this is again a difference with like for different reasons collins and murkowski are unbeatable by democrats mm -hmm. so like they can just like gain credit but like well, Hel and also like, Heller's gonna yeah. be the number one target no matter what he does well i think also murkowski is like unbeatable by challengers as she has like proved with her write-in right like she seems like someone who can do like whatever the fuck she wants at this point um but heller is like very much Stop. I don't see like a good way to come out of this for right. him. The only, I mean, the, I guess the best rationale I could think of for him to to turn coat and support this bill is just to sort of maintain having a future in Republican politics. Um, or, you know, like maybe he just wants to go work for the Chamber of Commerce someday <laughs> or something. Um, I do know the one tricky thing. I just I follow Nevada politics a little closer than others because I lived there for a little bit. And I you do, worked at the paper there at right? the Sun, yeah. And I do know I've seen John Ralston report that. You know, the, maybe the one logical thing would be for Dean Heller to lose next year and then run for governor or something. But I think there are some pretty because Sandoval is is termed out in either 2018 or 2020. But I've seen reports that the uh, Republican side of the next governor's race is pretty robust already. So that might not be a winner. for He's in an impossible I spot. Think, I, think I do the, not envy. Dean I think Heller. this calls for Harry Reid to make some calls and works it works of magic he must be loving this to be honest <laughs> i mean i'm sure he i'm sure he is but i mean it's it's yeah i mean he's he's stuck right but i mean the the way for democrats to win this fight would be to build a bridge for dean heller into the democratic mm -hmm. party it seems to me yeah
it, to at least offer him that opportunity. Right? Or Lisa Murkowski ends up killing it, and then Dean Heller has cover to. Yes, to that's vote. true. <laughs> she could she could she could do him a favor. Um, it's worth saying with with Murkowski because there is this. Uh, what do we call it? Kodiak. Kodiak kick, kickback. Kick, Kodiak. So. One difference from this and like uh, the Louisiana Purchase or, or something like that is net net with this provision in Alaska is still worse off. Oh yeah. yeah, it's like a very small like the amount they lose from Medicaid is really significant. And Alaska got something else I wrote about this week that I have no idea if this is related to the Senate bill, but the Trump administration actually took a very big step to make. Obamacare work better in Alaska. They are sending them $48 million for this program to offset the cost of expensive patients. They think it'll be deficit neutral because they will spend less on these tax subsidies. So in it was kind of the first time I've seen the Trump administration take a big step to make Obamacare work right. better. And you can read a few more details on Vox or um, if you subscribe to our newsletter, VoxCare, you would have gotten that in your inbox on Wednesday. Um, but these things are like small potatoes, like the money for Alaska is the Medicaid expansion. And like, maybe so So you need like the Kodiak kickback to be like, something in the Medicaid space. Because like, like I said earlier, Alaska is like ready to pull out of the Medicaid expansion if the funding goes down. Yeah. And she said pretty directly that this is not enough like bef- <laughs> previously. And when I interviewed her last month, she more or less said that if any bill ended Medicaid expansion, she wouldn't be able to support it. And she's told the state legislator, legislators, as long as you want Medicaid expansion, I want Medicaid expansion. So I am a little perplexed why she hasn't just come out and said she's going to oppose this bill because her entire public record over the last few months suggests that she should. But um, but it doesn't I don't see how the the Kodiak kickback or the polar payoff can can be enough. Yeah, because I mean, I, I just I do think it's worth emphasizing. I mean, classic state based legislative payoff. The idea is to make your state better off mm-hmm. than it was before right. the bill, right? So, like, maybe you don't actually love the underlying concepts, but there's like a deal that's like really good for you. So, right. you this vote is a for deal it. where you're less worse off right. than other states, <laughs> right? Which, I, um, from a Dan Sullivan standpoint, I sort of see, right? So, it's like if you're ideologically committed to the vision of this bill, but it's a disaster for Alaska, it's now like. It's not like not specially catastrophic for Alaska. It's just bad in the sense that it's like bad for all Medicaid expansion states, more or less. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't. I mean, this is across the board, right? If if Capito, Portman, Murkowski, Heller, that's about those are the big ones. Yeah. If they meant what they said, this bill would be dead. Yeah, I think that's right. And they could all, you know, maybe we'll see a, a situation where they all come out mm-hmm. together. So nobody's the third vote that killed this bill or something. And I have heard over the last couple months that, you know, the, the that, you know, group is trying to stay in pretty close contact and present sort of a united front. So maybe they just haven't agreed yet on how exactly they're going to oppose the bill. But otherwise, it does seem like they'd have to basically walk back everything that they've said thus far about not being able to support a bill that cuts Medicaid this deeply. Well, we'll see what happens by next, by Wednesday's Weeds. Yes, but don't walk back your fandom of the Weeds <laughs> and other fine Vox Media podcasts. Uh, check out Worldly, Ezra Klein Show. I think you're interesting. Uh, I am looking forward to hearing Eddie Izzard's take on the causes of World War One. personally. It's pretty good. Um, you know, share share uh, share your this with, with all your friends and your, your um, Join us relatives. in the Weeds Facebook group um, where you can talk to, I think, about 6,000 other Weeds fans. It's a really good discussion um we'll have a link to the group in um in the description of this podcast yeah and while we we will not have an episode on monday to to match the cbo score uh may uh, may hop in there and uh make some make some remarks on on the facebook page uh so thanks to, to dylan and sarah for taking the time uh thanks to our producer bird pinkerton and we will see you next week